Welcome to the Meeting Explorers podcast. This is Frederick Strang. In this episode, I'm excited to present to you German geologist and Everest expert Jochen Hemleb as we discuss perhaps the greatest adventure mystery in modern times. Did George Lee Mallory, with his fellow climbing partner Andrew Corbin Irvine, climb Mount Everest already back in 1924, almost three decades before the first official climb in 1953 by Sir Edmund Hillary and Norgay Tenzing? In the beginning of the 20th century, the English had failed to be the first to reach either the North or South Pole and were now determined to make the claims on the Third Pole, namely Everest. Mallory was driven almost to the point of obsession by Everest and was convinced he could conquer it for himself and for his country. Mallory and Irvine set out to climb the remaining stretch to the summit of Everest 8th June 1924. No one ever saw them alive after that date. The mystery that surrounds Mallory and his much younger comrade Irvine has captivated countless people over the years. Books and documentaries have been published about their epic last climb. And Mallory's idealism and famous response to a journalist who once asked, why climb Everest? Allegedly, Mallory replied, because it's there which is a quote that has inspired not only climbers alike, but businessmen and leaders. Can the mystery, whether or not they made it to the summit, find a conclusion? Well, in June 1998, geologist student Jochen Hemleb's life got an unexpected turn as this marked the start for a series of research expeditions to Everest, which would change the history of mountaineering for good. For more than a decade, Jochen had been working like a detective with thought-provoking ideas of what had happened to Mallory and Irvine. Little less than one year later, Jochen, together with a highly experienced crew of climbers, makes headlines all over the world as they find George Lee Mallory's body high on the formidable north face of Everest. We know that Mallory was carrying at least one Kodak vest pocket camera with him during the final assault towards the summit. The camera could not be found, but if it will, could a photograph disclose final proof of Mallory and Irvine's high point? Mallory always kept a photograph of his beloved wife Ruth in his jacket, a photograph he had promised to leave at the summit. When Mallory's body was discovered, that particular photograph could not be found. So where is it? Jochen has taken part in many research expeditions to Everest, and in later years, finding Irvine has been top priority. If Irvine were to be found, could he possess the camera that is so important, which perhaps once and for all closed this detective story? Or should some things just be left alone? Because in the end, if we find out that they did not make it to the summit, have we not destroyed some of the last remaining mysteries to marvel at in this world? Without further delay, I bring you Jochen Hemmler. Welcome, Jochen. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Well, Frederick, it's a pleasure to have the opportunity to do this podcast with you. I mean, we have some sort of history. We have worked together. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to join you and uh, answer your questions and talk about 
our favorite topic, which is mountaineering on the highest peaks. True. It's been, I think, 15 years since we met physically last time. And I remember I was making a documentary about the mystery on Mallory and Irvine. And I had uh, the possibility to interview you. And it was, uh, yeah, it was a learning experience, I must say. And uh, your expertise, to say the least, is just flabbergasting. It's impressive. And your story, your history with this mystery is also tantalizing. Uh, so before we jump into exploring the evidence of Mallory and Irvine and discussing clues and hypothesis linked to Mallory's and then Irvine's fatal climb. Please tell the listeners about yourself and what you're doing. Yeah, I'm now uh, 48 years old and I'm working as a filmmaker and book writer, author, um, and I'm living with my family in northern Italy now in that German-speaking part of South Tyrol. And yeah, um, Everest, the mystery of Mallory and Irvin, has some, been some sort of companion in my life for the past, yeah, 30 years, I can now say. So it's been a theme that has always recurred over time as it does right now. So yeah, that is pretty much what I'm doing, developing this story, following it, and do other projects, um, always with this theme of mountaineering and mountaineering history. I think I can have easily a million questions for you about mountains and mountaineering and mountaineering history. Uh, but in this episode, we are concentrating on the Mallory and Irvine climb in 1924. Uh, so here is the million dollar question for you. Do you think that Mallory and Irvine, or either one of them, made it to the summit of Everest in 1924. Wow, it is really the million-dollar question. Did Mallory and Irvine summit Everest in 1924? I consider it unlikely, but there's still an outside chance and a number of unresolved questions, so I would not completely rule out that they might have made it. If they would have made it, how big of an achievement do you think this would be in today's standard? Well, the summit success on Everest in 1924 um, could be described as a quantum leap in mountaineering. I mean, this was 26 years before any of the 8,000-meter peaks had been climbed in Aperna in 1950 and 29 years before Everest was officially first climbed by Hillary and Tenzing. And consider how much equipment had developed in those nearly 30 years. To summit Everest with the gear that Mallory and Irvin had would be simply an yeah, nearly incredible achievement, way out there. And even if they didn't, to get as high as they did or as their companions, Norton and Summerwell, did without oxygen to 8,575 meters just four days earlier, four days before Mallory and Irvin's attempt, those were really history-making climbs 
in mountaineering history? Well, it's um, a story that I think is captivating a lot of people. And I think that a lot of people are intrigued to find out the truth. But something that is making a lot of question marks in my head is that we found Mallory's body during your research expedition back in 1999. But why have we not till this date been able to locate Irvin, despite that Chinese climber Su Jing reported that he saw him back in 1960 and that a Nepalese climber called Shirin Dorya Sherpa saw him back in 1995 and numerous reconnaissance expeditions since then been trying to locate him. Why haven't we found Irvin yet? Why hasn't Irvin been found yet is an answer, is a question that I can't really answer. All we can say at this point is that for some reason, he doesn't seem to be there anymore, up there, because all the possible locations that had been either gained from eyewitness testimony or from air photo analysis have now been searched without success. So Irvin simply appears to have disappeared. He's gone. And no one can really say why. So I'm throwing out a hypothesis here. Is it possible that Irvin somehow have disappeared from the position where Xu Jing reported by an avalanche or, or that is simply the sun melted um, so he wasn't stuck to the uh, rock and ice anymore and he was somehow avalanched from his spot? Is that a possibility? Um, when you look at Chu Jing's testimony where he saw Irvin, um, the general interpretation is that Irvin was close to the crest of the Northeast Ridge, somewhere below the first step. And in that case, an avalanche would be unlikely. But um, what I consider likely is there could be something like you just described, that he somehow melted out. And in that melting out, he was moved to a position where he became perhaps more exposed to the wind. And of course, a strong storm could have moved a frozen body. And in that case, he would have fallen down the north face. Well, that sounds terrible because as far as I'm concerned, Irvin hold the key to the mystery whether or not they made it to the top. So what options do we have here? If that is the case, is it even possible to think that he could be relocated at the bottom, at the Rongbok Glacier at some point? Or is that a far-stretched idea? Well, um, it is the question, does Irwin hold the key to the mystery? And I think we will talk later a bit more about the camera he carried with him. But coming to your question again, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, if anything has been learned from all those search expedition and all this historical research, it is that Everest continues to surprise us. So, yes, I consider it possible that Irvin's body might still be found 
and perhaps all the way down on the on the main Rongbuk glacier. And we can only tell for sure uh, if someone goes there and takes a look. Mm. Mm. Jumping back now, um, a little bit earlier on to uh, 1953, um, in Sir Edmund Hillary's accounts of the successful 1953 expedition to the summit of Everest, Hillary did explain that he spent a big portion of the time on the summit looking for signs from Mallory, but he could see none. Uh, there has been caricatures circulating where Hillary is kicking down oxygen cylinders from the summit to hide any evidence from Mallory, which I find quite amusing. Um, if Mallory and Irvin made it to the top, why have we not found more than a mitten, an oxygen cylinder, an ice axe, and all those things below 8,500 meters on the northeast ridge of Everest? Yeah, that's a good question. Why has been no higher trace found than oxygen bottle number nine at nearly 8,500 meters? Uh, there is, of course, one very simple answer uh, that many experts share uh, that says they simply didn't get any higher. That's one possibility. Uh, the other possibility, which I consider more likely, is that Mallory and Irwin went by a different route. So <clears throat> any equipment they might have left behind at a higher point is not on the standard route. Um, so that is a possibility, and that is possibly a reason why nothing more has been found above 8,500 meters. As far as the summit is concerned, well, you know the summit of Everest. It's been a huge cornice overhanging the east face, and that cornice has the... Um, yeah, slightly disadvantageous uh, habit of dropping stuff down the east face. Um, the Chinese had placed the tripod on the summit in 1975 that got submerged in the snow in subsequent years and then uh, turned up again, uh, dangling over the east face a couple of years later. And the same would have happened with any... Uh, items like an oxygen cylinder or so that Mallory and Irvin might have placed on the summit itself. A different matter would have been if they had placed one of these items among the rocks close to the summit. And that's an area uh, that has never been searched uh, in a, a planned and detailed fashion. We have all the reasons to go back to all these interesting facts and theories, but, but let's go back to you. And um, it was a Christmas day back in 1987. You were 16 years old. You were, your general interest for climbing and the history of Everest expeditions had taken your focus. Your parents gave you a newly published book on the disappearance of Mallory and Irvin. That book had great impact on you. What kind of book was that and, and, and how did that evolve? Yeah, the book was uh, The Mystery of Mallory and Irvin by um, American researcher Tom Holzell and British historian Audrey Salkeld. And um, I have noted in myself a tendency to be just captivated by natural, real mysteries, mysteries of exploration, mysteries of history. 
And I seem to develop this kind of gut feeling, what, what fascinates me, what captivates me. And that was the case. I can literally point it to, down to the, to the hour on, on that Christmas day or shortly after Christmas in 1987 when I had read The Mystery of Mallory and Irvin uh, through for the first time. I had this absolute conviction inside me, this deep-seated gut feeling, hell, <coughs> this story is going to lead to something in my life. I was absolutely sure of that. I couldn't tell how and why, but I was absolutely sure. It was really a gut feeling, and eventually it turned out just the same way. You're absolutely true about that. Did you share this gut feeling with anyone, or uh, did you tell anyone about these ideas that you had? Back? Mm, I, I didn't really tell straight away, but probably a few people, namely my parents and my friends, they certainly noticed that um, the the months and years afterwards, um, how my interest in all of this really grew. And, and I, I ordered, constantly ordered books and I read articles and I went to archives and did those copies, made copies of pictures and I wrote to climbers and so on and so on. It really became, as I said earlier in our, in our talk, um, that it became a companion in my life. Uh, my my regular life went on the usual way. I did school, I did university, but the Mallory and Irvin mystery was a constant companion through all of this. And let me tell something in addition to that. Um, now it's been 20 years since I was on that expedition that found Mallory's body. And of course, you think about what actually um, is left behind as some sort of core message of all of this. And I used to say, never forget your dreams. If, if anyone has this sort of strong gut feeling, he or she should definitely follow it. It's really your inner journey and your, your personal journey. And it's what makes your life unique. So if you have a gut feeling like that, follow it and do your passion. Follow your passion. Something personal about you is that you said that mountaineering was both your salvation and your curse. I, when I read this, um, I can somehow understand what you mean um, because I felt the same. But how was, how was this for you? Well, it starts with the curse first. Um, when you uh, follow something with a passion, and it doesn't really have to be climbing, it goes for other passions as well, it probably makes you something of an outsider. And I, I had some quite difficult times at school because of my pronounced interest in certain topics like climbing. And um, when I now give talks at school, I sometimes talk about this with, with teachers who confirm that it is a bit of a contradiction in young people that everybody wants to do something special. But as soon as someone really does it, take this plan into action, 
then he or she is becoming an outsider because, well, he, he, yeah, he's something special, really. And that's sad because, um, I mean, you should actually, um, prosper and, and support individual talent and passions. So that was the curse part. And the salvation part was that climbing, mountaineering made me feel so alive and, um, that has a very personal component. Um, my mother has been suffering from depressions, uh, clinical dis- depressions uh, for 30 years. And um, it started when I was young, when I was 18. And at age 18, you just want to live and you want to feel life. You want to feel alive. You want to explore what you can do. And that's very, very difficult if you have a close person beside you who is depressed and constantly having negative thoughts, thoughts about loss and death. And in that period of time, climbing became my salvation because it gave me back this feeling of being totally alive, of recognizing opportunities of, yeah, you can say literally it's, 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 it's a very strong image. You, you can experience boundless horizons and that stuck with me and it's still true nowadays whenever i feel um depressed because of something happening in my life um a climb a hike being out in nature being on a summit pretty much sets me straight Mm. thank you for sharing I had no clue about your mother, and uh, but I'm well acquainted with uh, depression uh, in my family, and uh, that's been very tough for my family to handle. My sister uh, was suffering from anorexia uh, for many, many years, and uh, for sure that that um, affects the entire climate in a family and uh, if you live up so close with a person who is depressed and uh, it does affect you Uh, so thank you for sharing Uh, but I can also relate to that salvation part Uh, I've seen that in myself as well I've um, not had many friends as a youth and climbing can be in salvation and I'm glad you found that in your life uh, I want to go back to uh, something I read in The Ghost of Everest, uh, the book about the 1999 research expedition from Mallory and Irvine. Uh, you said that you don't think climbers climb to risk death. You think they climb to prove to themselves that they are not already dead. Uh, I'm curious here, you, if anyone knows the story of Mallory, his motives and drivers, what do you think that Mallory at his final day on 8th of June, 1924, when he set out for the northeast reach of Mount Everest, that he couldn't distinguish between risking death and proving to himself that he was not already dead? Was it a do-or-die mission for him that day? It's a good question whether on that final day it was a do-or-die attempt for Mallory or Mallory and Irwin. Um, Personally, I don't think so. Um, But it, of course, depends on what kind of picture we have of Mallory. 
Um, and we come to his personality later, but you know, there are um, opinions of Mallory that he would have uh, made an all out effort that day. Um, others disagree that he would have been responsible, that he, he would uh, take care of his partner, Andrew Irwin. Um, so it is hard to say. Um, one thing that I'm pretty sure is that the lure of the summit, especially if it is the highest mountain in the world, um, makes you simply brush away any thoughts of death. Of dying. And that is not the same as risking death. It is just putting it completely out of your mind, going for it, perhaps with some kind of foolish optimism that things will turn out right and that you take things step by step. And that is something I can pretty much imagine Mallory and Irvin doing. Um, going out, giving their best shot, being lured by the summit, and, yeah, maybe in the process, getting too far. But that's not, for me, the same as willingly risking death. Hmm. But it's a general consensus that uh, Mallory had an obsession for the peak, for Everest itself, uh, because... He was the epitome of mountaineering. He was the finest climber in Britain at the time. And once he found out that Everest was the highest peak in the world, he felt that he had to go there. How would you describe Mallory as a person and what made him so obsessed with scaling Everest? Well, first of all, um, Mallory was um, not only an excellent climber and sportsman, but also an intellectual and an artist. Um, so he realized intellectually that there was great potential uh, in an ascent of Everest. Um, he could use that as a springboard for his own career. Um, he was a teacher and he was a teacher uh, who had, um, when you compared with modern concepts of education, very, very advanced thoughts. And if you are familiar with uh, the concept of Waldorf schools or something like that, Mallory would have easily fitted into that. And he could have made a, a big impact as teacher and as educator of, of young people. And he realized if he had the summit of Everest, this first ascent uh, added to his curriculum, um, he could really expand on his ideas and promote his ideas. Uh, and that is, I think, pretty much the reason why he became obsessed with that goal, uh, because he perfectly understood its potential meaning beyond climbing. and. The downside of all of this is, um, and that's the reason why I sometimes describe Mallory as the first Everest junkie, um, he became in some sort uh, dependent not only on success reaching the summit, but also on what people think of success. Um, he had to reach the summit um, in order to take that step 
in his life, and that of course exposed him um, to bigger risks. Uh, I had a very interesting talk with one of the sons of Edward Norton, Mallory's companion and expedition leader who had made this attempt without oxygen four days earlier. And I asked him, um, how do you think, is it pure chance, pure coincidence that your father survived, although he was just less than 300 meters away from the summit, just as Mallory and Irwin were when they were last seen? Or was there some deeper reason why your father, Edward Norton, came back and Mallory did not? And um, Hugh Norton, his son, gave this very succinct answer. He said, you know, my father didn't need the mountain. He had a very satisfying life as a professional soldier, and Everest was just a welcome and exciting distraction, a deviation, but there was no necessity for him to reach the summit. And I think that speaks a lot about individual freedom and freedom of mountaineering. Yeah. Very insightful. I never, I never heard that story before, but uh, that is definitely true. I remember in 2005, I made my first attempt on Mount Everest. Didn't succeed. Turned around on the top of second step, 240 meters left to the summit. When I came back in 2006, I made... Um, uh, resolve where I told myself that um, the summit of Mount Everest is not my only way and path to happiness. I am happy just being on the mountain. Without that pressure of needing to summit, I was so thoroughly relaxed and I just enjoyed it. It was a joyride and I went up and down without really no hardships and it was just an enjoyable ride. And, and, and the distinction between uh, being completely absorbed by the necessity to reach a top and that uh, it's a bonus if you do reach a top, but not a necessity for you to thrive and have a happy life. I think that is uh, incredibly important uh, for the safety, not only for oneself, but for the entire uh, companionship on, on, and the team uh, on a mountain. So it's it's intriguing. And I want to go back to 1998 now, uh, on the morning of June 2nd, you received an email that would change your life. And what was this about? Well, at the time in 1998, I was um, I had already published my first uh theories and thoughts about Mallory and Irvin and also had voiced my interest uh, that I would like to organize or join a search expedition on the mountain. And I had been in preliminary uh, discussions, talks with the BBC, um, if there was a possibility to join their team. Um, but in 1908, um, I received an email from an American named Larry Johnson, who was also taken on by the idea. And he uh, opened up a different possibility, namely that I join an American team. 
And as I didn't have any firm contract or promise from the BBC, I tried that avenue as well. And as events turned out, um, the Americans were a lot more uh, convincing and serious in their promise to take me along if I join their effort in fundraising and so on. And in a way, um, answering that email uh, was the pivotal point, uh, the decisive point that eventually got me onto the 1999 Mallory and Irvin Research Expedition. So the 1999 Research Expedition was a fact and you were teaming up with an amazing dream team. Who were these people and what roles did they have in the team? Yeah, of course, the, the key persons were Eric Simonson, our expedition leader, and our climbing and search team uh, with some well-known names like Conrad Anker, one of the perhaps best all-round alpinists of the U.S., and also very experienced mountain guides like Dave Hahn, who has in subsequent years Everest climbed 15 times. And uh, other guys like like Andy Pollitz, who had visited uh, all three sites of Everest on seven expeditions through veteran climbers. Also some young mountain guides like Jake Norton and Tab Richards, who were those young hotshots, energizers to the team. Um, and then we had an accompanying media team. Um, we were sponsored by um, two TV broadcast companies, the BBC in England, who sent a producer, Peter Firstbrook, and Graham Hoyland, who had a, also a very personal connection to the Mallory and Irwin mystery by being related to Howard Somerville, uh, Mallory's friend and uh, companion on the 1924 expedition. And we had the PBS Nova team from the US who sent a uh, Producer Liesl Clark, uh, the only lady in our team, and two camera person, um, Ned Johnston, who was to cover the ascent up to the North Col, and Tom Pollard as a high altitude cameraman. So we were, essentially, we were a team of two. We had the, the media team, the, the film crew, and we had the climbing and search team. And I, as a historian, I was a bit of a one man show in all of this. Um, yeah, so that was that was the roster of the Mallory and Irvin research expedition. Did you feel that since basically people were relying on your science, on your historic research, did you feel weight on your shoulders that the success of the expedition would highly be dependent on your um, theories and your research? Was that a heavy burden to carry? Yes, it was. It was a bit of a burden. Um, I had no expedition experience at that time. Um, so I pretty much had that subconscious feeling that I needed to prove myself, that I needed to justify my participation in the expedition. And I can honestly say that um, not everybody was absolutely convinced that I should be 
on that team and um, there were one or two who uh, more or less expressed uh, the opinion uh, that this is a climber's job and should stay a climber's job and that there was no place for an egghead on this kind of an expedition. But I can speak for most of the climbing team that they were really, really curious and really, really eager to explore this mystery. And um, it was actually very touching how with what kind of enthusiasm they embraced this challenge uh, to go out there and do all the searching. I mean, all in all, the climbing team did a tremendous job. And I felt pretty honored by the fact that they relied on my research, uh, that they were listening to what I was saying. Um, so, yeah, it, it felt really good for for most of the climbing team um they they were really good uh i can say students of mountaineering history not that i really was their teacher but we had a very very good um conversational basis there i wish i could have been a fly on the side of the tent listening to all this spectacle uh, that would have been amazing <laughs> Well, your purpose there was to locate an English dead. And that was based on a sighting from a Chinese climber, Wang Huangbu, who in 1975 taken a stroll from Chinese Camp 6, where he discovered an old body. This rumor was a key centerpiece in the 1999 research expedition. What I'm wondering here is who was this Wang Huangbu and who had he seen? Was it Mallory he had seen? Or could it have been Urban that he had seen? Uh, Wang Hongbao was a member of the 1975 uh, Chinese expedition, um, which was perhaps the biggest expedition to Everest at that date. Uh, and they had, I think, 250, no, 400 members they had in total. It was a really, really big team. And um, when they were high on the mountain in the area of Camp 6, um, as you said, he took a stroll from his camp. And when he came back to the tent, he told his partner he had found the body of a foreign mountaineer. And one thing was sure, this could only have been Mallory or Irvin, because they were the only foreigners who had gone missing at that altitude on that side of the mountain before 1975. So that was a really, really interesting clue. How were you able to figure out the search area based on Wang Hombo's report? That must have been very tricky. Well, um, the problem was um, Wang Hongbao had reported his sighting in 1979 on a Japanese expedition. And unfortunately, the very next day, he was killed on the North Call in an avalanche. So there was no way that he could be questioned further, that he could provide more details. So all that we knew at that point was somewhere around 8,100 meters close to that Chinese camp there is the body of either Mallory and Irvin. And I was wondering, 
prior to the expedition, how could we narrow down the search area? And of course, the best way would be to find out where the Chinese camp had been. So we could literally walk into Wang Hongbao's footsteps. And the idea came to me when I took a look at various expedition reports. I suddenly realized that the camps or the tents at Camp 6 were not in the same place uh, during the various expeditions. There was a shift in the background. So you could see Camp 6 wasn't always in the same spot. And there was a way to use this shift in the background to determine the point where each camp was placed. And so I saw that that Chinese Camp 6 of 1975 was not in the same spot as nowadays Camp 6. It was away horizontally and also there was a slight difference in altitude. And that was the reason why this English debt had not been rediscovered. He was away from the, from the standard route. And once I had the position of the Chinese camp, I felt that our search team had a much greater chance uh, to be successful. Uh, like I said, they could walk into Wang Hongbao's footsteps, recreate his stroll, and then perhaps also find the old English dead. So you had photographs from the 1975 expedition. Is that correct? So you were using these photographs and overlapping them with recent photographs from Camp 6. Was that the method? Yeah, it's um, comparison and, and also applying the same uh, cartographical method to it in order to determine the actual point of view of the photographer. And there was just one single photograph of Wang Hongbao's camp published in a book, but I could use that and I could compare it with the other camp locations. And so in the end, it was possible to determine the position of the Chinese camp with an accuracy of plus or minus about 30 meters, both horizontal and vertical. Amazing. Just amazing. This is like Sherlock Holmes going high altitude. This is crazy. Uh, but, but why were you so convinced that it had to be Irvin and not Mallory that Van Hoambu had seen? Um, as it turned out, um, the Chinese camp uh, was very close to this sort of basin in the north face of Everest. And this basin was located below the spot where Andrew Irvin's ice axe had been found in 1933. So the common way of thinking was, if the ice axe had marked the site of an accident and it was Irvin's ice axe, then it is very plausible, even logical, that it must have been Irvin who had fallen down into that basin. So any old English dead close to that Chinese camp was more likely to have been Andrew Irvin and Mallory, simply because of the connection with the Isaacs that was found higher up on the Northeast Ridge. So for you listeners who are getting all confused about uh, 
features on the mountain. Uh, let's give the listeners a visual understanding of the dawning north face of Everest and, and key features and route towards the summit. Uh, Jochen, can you please give us a virtual tour so we can picture it in our head? What kind of what kind of features and terrain are we talking about here, and which are key features that we need to have imprint in our mind to understand how we continue forward discussing clues and hypotheses? Well, when you start the ascent of, of Everest from the north, um, you climb the North Col, which is a 400-meter-high ice wall leading to a, a saddle, a pass at 7,070 meters where Camp 4 is located. And this is followed by a long, broad snow ridge leading up to an altitude of about 7,600 meters. There, the ridge becomes more rocky. It's big blocky rock and scree. And that leads up to the upper left corner of the north face. And that is a tilted slope of snow and rock and scree. And about 300 meters away from that north ridge, uh, there's a small subsidiary rib. And on that rocky rib, there was the Chinese camp located. Um, and to the right of that rib, when looking from below, there's this basin tilted at an angle of 35, 40, 45 degrees in places. Um, sort of, of catchment area, um, which is bordered at the bottom by some steeper cliffs. It breaks off and then fans out in that long, very long rock and snow face leading down to the main Rongbuk Glacier. So it's a very uniform, vast desert, tilted desert of snow and scree and broken rocks um, that made out the search area. I think desert describes it pretty well. What's also very impressive is the northeast ridge that forms the upper border of the north north face. I mean, it's a slightly jagged, rocky ridge um, which forms the border of a steep band, a thick band of yellowish limestone. Um, and on top of that, there are some grayish, steeper rock bands where they meet with the ridge, they form steep outcrops that are the first and second step. And above that, and very far off to the right, um, is that summit cone, a bright, broad snowfield leading up to the summit ridge. Uh, I think the whole north face of Everest, I've always been impressed by its architecture. It's, it is a beautifully composed mountain, actually, and I've always been impressed by that. Yeah, it's especially beautiful during sunset. Yeah. It turns reddish and it's almost like it's on fire. Uh, yeah. That's the uh, a view to behold. Uh, beautiful. Uh, let's break down the last day on Mallory and Irvin's climb. What do we know for sure happened on 8th of June, 1924? Well, Prior to our 99 expedition, what we knew for sure was that sometime in the morning, 
of June 8, 1924, Mallory and Irwin started their climb from their Camp 6 on the North Ridge at 8,140 meters. Um, we can reasonably estimate that they must have started between 5 and 7 o'clock, and then they left. They took a line that led them up to the crest of the Northeast Ridge, and at midday at 12.50, they were spotted by Noel O'Dell, who was climbing a day behind them to support them on the descent. Uh, they were seen climbing a rock step on the Northeast Ridge. Unfortunately, O'Dell was never absolutely certain where he saw the pair. Um, so they were climbing this rock step at over 8,500 meters, and then they disappeared. The clouds rolled in, and they were hidden from view, and they were never seen again. So all we know is that sometime during that day, during that afternoon or evening, they must have had an accident. They either got benighted on the mountain or they fell. They died. Now back to 1999, you were observing your climbing team's progress from a binocular in base camp as they searched over the precarious north face at around 8,000 meters. Had your team agreed on a methodology to scan the area? Were they, for instance, using metal detectors to find pieces of evidence? Well, the interesting thing was on that May 1st, 1999, that it almost happened by accident. Um, the team wanted to make an exploratory trip into the search area out of Camp 5. So they climbed up the regular route to Camp 6, had a rest there for perhaps half an hour, and then they crossed over into the basin I have just described that was beyond uh, this slight rocky rip where the Chinese camp was located. And when they crossed over that rip, um, they came across an old oxygen cylinder from the Chinese expedition of 1975, the expedition of Wang Hongbao. So they knew they were in the right area. They were on the right track. And when they got into the basin, they fanned out. And, and I can say that at this point, I more or less trusted their expertise and instincts. And as it turned out, um, every climber followed more or less his own way of thinking. I mean, Dave Hahn, he explored more of the rip towards the Chinese camp. Uh, Jake Norton and Tab Richards, they descended uh, roughly down the middle of the terrace of the basin. Andy Pollitz, he believed that. Um, Mallory and Irvin's fall might have occurred higher up in the yellow band, so he was looking around for clues there. And Conrad Enker, he went all the way to the bottom of the uh, snow basin and explored there. So everybody was more or less following his own hunches. And so in this way, which was more or less methodical, um, it wasn't a perfectly conceived grid pattern search, but it was a search that covered a lot of ground um, in a relatively short time. And it was Conrad Anker who discovered Mallory's body. 
and most others thought he was way too low at the basin, that he was uh, scrutinizing an area that was beyond the search area, basically. But he found him. Uh, he, he went there by pure instinct, and he radioed down to uh, the rest of the people, why don't you come over for tea and Snickers? Was that planned in beforehand to have a code to signal uh, if you found the body? Actually, there was a different code. Um, we had agreed on using the words boulder uh, for finding the body of either Mallory or Irvin. And uh, the word Gorak, uh, Himalayan raven, uh, for finding the camera. And the first sentence Conrad uh, said over the radio was, the last time I tried a boulder in hobnailed boots, I fell off. And well, at the time, nobody got that. And then he tried again and said, uh, why don't you come down for tea and Snickers? And Pretty creative and, for being on almost 8,000 meters. <laughs> this wasn't really understood either. Uh, but then I saw uh, one of our team members, Andy Pollitz, who had been highest in the search area, um, going down all the way 150 meters in altitude uh, to the spot where Conrad was waiting. And I thought, hell, uh, at that altitude, nobody goes down 150 meters vertical distance just because of tea and Snickers. So something must have been going going on were you surprised that disregard if this was Mallory or Irvin but are you surprised that Mallory was found at this particular place well um when over the course of the following hours it first became apparent they had found something and in the evening, as Dave Hahn radioed down, Jochen, you are going to be a happy man, um, I realized, yeah, they had made the big discovery. Um, and then it turned out that it was Mallory. Um, at that point, I wasn't really surprised where Mallory was found. Uh, I was surprised and obviously dumbfounded that they really had found Mallory, uh, that they had found one of them. I mean, that it was Mallory um, was a big surprise, um, partly because we had expected to find Irvin, but also because Mallory had been this dominant figure in the history of the early Everest expeditions. Um, but the, the question about the place where he ended up, um, that came a bit later when we realized, first of all, the place was not in the direct fall line of the ice axe, of Andrew Irvin's ice axe. So that indicated something. And um, the other point was, later it was discovered that Mallory had bloodstains on his jacket, on the front of his jacket. And at the same time, he was lying face down on the slopes. And a few experts, forensic experts, have uttered the, the, the opinion over the years uh, that 
because of this situation that he had those blood stains on the front of the jacket and ended up lying face down, there must have been some time between an accident in which Mallory was injured and had the blood stains on his jacket and the accident that put him in his final resting place. So there is indication that Mallory suffered two accidents and before he died. Another clue about Mallory's fate is that he had a rope attached to his waist when he was found. And at the end of the rope, it was snapped. Is it possible to believe that Mallory and Irvine were roped up before Mallory slid and fell to his final resting place? Yeah, that's not only pl pl plausible, that's, that's a firm, that's, that's for sure, because um, Mallory did not only have the, the rope, the remnants of the rope around his waist, he had rope jerk injuries. Um, the rope had cut a deep groove um, in his waist and there were bruising associated with it. It probably had also compressed or even broken some of his ribs. So he must have taken a fall being belayed by Irvin or maybe with a rope running over a rock and the rope had snapped. And that, of course, leaves the question, what happened to Irvin? If they were roped up, shouldn't Irvin then be located just in straight line upwards the mountain from Mallory's location? And as people been searching in this vicinity, why haven't they found him at that spot? Instead, they've reported that he's been found more to the right from Mallory's placement. How is that possible? Yeah, um, of course, uh, we, we had wondered if, if Irvin had ended up in the vicinity of Mallory. And in 2001, during my second search expedition, uh, the team explored a vast area um, around and above uh, Mallory's resting place. And we came away in 2001 with almost 100% certainty that Mallory is the only English dead in the vicinity of the Chinese camp. So where's Irvin? Um, when Irvin was seen, by Chu Jing in 1960, he placed the body high on the ridge and probably to the right when seen from above or to the left when seen from below, Mallory's location. Uh, what does that mean? It probably means that Irvin survived the accident that snapped the rope and separated the two climbers. He tried to make his way down on his own and then died of exhaustion or injuries, uh, perhaps in some sort of emergency bivouac. What about the camera? Is it possible that the West Pocket Kodak camera that Mallard presumably carried during his and urban summit attack had simply fallen out as he slid down the mountainside? Yeah, that's, that's absolutely one possibility that the camera was lost uh, in Mallory's fatal fall. Um, on the other hand, it is also possible that he had given his camera to Irvin at some point during the climb. And that is, of course, a question that can only be solved 
if Irvin's body is ever found. So what is the most acceptable theory for how Mallory's life ended? Mallory died in a fall that did not occur at the Isaac site. It must have occurred a lot lower because he was relatively um, not uninjured. He had a number of injuries, but um, the injuries did not point to a fall over the full distance of 300 meters from the ice axe to his final resting place, half of it over the steep cliffs of the yellow band. In that case, Mallory's body would have looked a lot worse than he looked when he was found. So he took a fall, perhaps crossing that snow basin. He tried to self-arrest uh, with his ice axe, he was found in a position that was was almost like a self-arrest position with arms stretched out over his head, fingers dug into the slope. Um, what eventually killed him was um, that during the fall, he broke his leg, so he would not have been able to move again. And he was hit by something. It might have been a, snow, a stone. Um, one researcher has suggested that Mallory might even have been hit in his head by his own ice axe. Anyway, he suffered a hole in his head over his left eye, and that was a severe head injury that uh, most likely killed him. The 1999 research expedition was a success, but even though you found Mallory and many more questions had arisen, so you were planning for a new research expedition in 2001. What was the purpose with the second research expedition? Well, obviously, um, although our team had found Mallory in 99, um, we didn't find the camera. Uh, and as Irvin was still missing, um, it was clear that the best chance of locating a camera uh, was to look for Irvin's body. And that's what we did. The, nine, the 2001 search team spent a lot more time high on the mountain. We did, in fact, uh, three search trips on the high mountain, all the way between um, the 8,100-meter level, um, where high up on the North Ridge Camp 6 of Mallory and Irvin was located, all the way up to the base of the first step at 8,500 meters. Um, we found a few more traces. We found uh, the remnants of Mallory and Irvin's final camp. We found a mysterious woolen mitten high on the crest of the Northeast Ridge at 8,440 meters, which might have belonged to Mallory and Irvin, but of Andrew Irvin himself or his camera, there was no sign to be found. Once again, in 2009, you went back for a third time. Then I guess this was the same goal, trying to retrieve uh, Irvine and a camera. Was the, is that correct? It is correct. Um, in fact, I went back twice in 2010 and 2011. Um, so you may ask, well, you weren't successful in locating Irvin in 2001. Why did you go again? Well, I keep saying um, 
We did not find any trace of Irwin on the mountain in 2001, but we found one in Beijing in China because it was in summer of 2001 after our search expedition that we met with Chinese veteran climber Chu Jing, who told us of his sighting of another body high on the Northeast Ridge in 1960, which could only have been Andrew Irvin. And so in 2010 and 2011, uh, I went back to look for Irvin in a place indicated by that second Chinese testimony. Although I have to say, in both expeditions, we were unsuccessful uh, in large parts because there was a lot of snow on the ridge. So we cannot be certain that we had explored all possible places where Irvin might have been. Well, evidently, Irvin is the key to solve this enigma. So I'm wondering, what kind of material is available out there? What about high-resolution satellite images. Tom Holzel, he acquired large-format diapositives from the 1984 aerial mapping of Everest. So I'm wondering, with today's technology, isn't there higher-resolution satellite images that can be used and somehow maybe decipher the maps and the photographs to pinpoint where it is? Maybe you've been looking into this. I don't know. Uh, have this been conducted? In fact, it has been. Um, there are high-resolution satellite images available, and one of my colleagues, uh, Jake Norton, he would be able to tell you more about that. I have had a look, uh, thanks to him, on some of these high-resolution images. Um, and also, last spring spring of 2019, a team sponsored by National Geographic um, went to Everest and they used drones to uh, fly into the yellow band and take high-resolution pictures there. Um, their film was premiered last Monday and I saw it online and it's a terrific film. It's uh, the the drone footage of the yellow band of the high mountain is is incredible it's incredibly detailed and based on this um two searches were undertaken in 2019 but again both of these searches um which were partly based on the air photo mapping of Tom Holzell uh both searches were unsuccessful, and the teams came away with the feeling from, from their efforts that, for whatever reason, uh, Irvin is not up there anymore. This is mysterious. This is almost like an X-File episode. He's been there, evidently, in the past, but somehow, with all these reconnaissance expeditions, it's high-res satellite images. He simply ceased to exist. Is then it plausible to draw the conclusion that somehow he must have been freed from his resting place, ending up further down the mountain? Um, that's for me is right now the best explanation that for whatever reason and in whatever way this must have happened and that he is probably 
somewhere down on the north face, perhaps even down on the main Rongbuk glacier. And well, all we can do is, yeah, go there and look, maybe. What would it take? It's it, it, This is a vast, enormous area. Uh, isn't this like looking for a needle in a haystack? It really is. I mean, the bottom of the North Face and the, the head of the main Rongbuk Glacier, they aren't too difficult to reach. I mean, I've been, um, I've been there halfway and it would have taken another one or two days to reach the base of the North Face. And, and it isn't that difficult of a terrain. But of course, the head of the main Rongbuk Glacier is heavily crevassed and, well, if Irwin ended down there, he was probably swallowed by one of those big crevasses and there's almost no chance that he's found. And another possibility is that because the north face of Everest is not too steep, um, that the body never got all the way to the to the base of the north face. So um, I would tend to think that the best option for a future search would be to do more drone reconnaissance, film more of the mountain terrain in the hope of perhaps spotting further clues. And then if further clues are found, uh, send a team there. I normally regard myself as non-superstitious. I, I, I am more prone for pragmatism but but it seems like uh, inevitably uh, that there is um, perhaps uh, forces higher than ourselves that perhaps is trying to utter a message here perhaps we shouldn't understand what happened in the final hours with Mallory and Irvin maybe some mistress should just be left alone maybe it's more romantic of a feeling and a notion to uh, uh, tantalize about uh, how they could have reached the top. Uh, if we do find the camera and we find that they didn't get much higher than 8.5, perhaps that's um, uh, a very sad ending to this entire enigma. What's your take on this? You know, I find it, I really like it that you bring this up. Um, because I have a divided opinion. Um, on one hand, um, it's perhaps in the nature of, of some people that they go after unexplored mysteries. Um, and at the same time, it's also in the nature of some people to believe that some mysteries should be untouched, that there should be something that is beyond the grasp of knowledge. There's probably plenty in the Mallory and Irvin mystery that will never be solved, that is uh, really beyond the grasp of conventional knowledge. And that's a good thing. Um, it's equally a good thing um, that people keep exploring those mysteries and eventually they may come to the realization um, that not the result is important, but the journey. And that certainly goes for me. Um, what's been so exciting about is this journey of discovery. You go out there, 
you find out more, you find out more about the mystery, but also about yourself. Um, and as long as this journey continues, um, you will gain experience, more knowledge, um, perhaps other doors open for you. And in all of this, um, perhaps the only thing is that is important is um, that you keep going um, and at the same time not be fixed uh, on a definitive result, that you keep up some sort of natural curiosity and the, the willingness or ability uh, to take and accept and learn from, from anything uh, that the mountain gives to you or what the mountain hides from you. I totally agree. I mean, I think there should be magic in this world. And, and perhaps we are puncturing the opportunity for magic if we find out everything. Imagine, hypothetically, thousands and thousands from year of years from now on when we understand perhaps the origin of the universe and and uh, maybe we have contact with other civilizations in space perhaps much of the magic has disappeared then now we can be bewildered about issues and and and, and stories that has captivated people for years and, and uh, I truly appreciate what you say about the, the process is what matters, the journey, instead of always uh, being so result-oriented. Uh, I have an analogy. Uh, a lot of people that I meet, I ask, them, so I ask them, do you want to climb the mountain or would you rather have the mountain climb? And surprisingly, a lot of people and the majority is choosing they want to have the mountain climb before climbing the mountain but for me personally i'd say that adventure is um, not knowing uh, the outcome it's an uncertainty and i think that is what puts magic into the often so organized lives that we're living today uh, with the internet and electricity 24 7 and the most and, and, and toughest thing that can obstruct and, and disturb uh, our order is maybe a parking ticket. Uh, and uh, I think we need more magic. And I, I like to believe that they made it to the top, even though the evidence doesn't point in that direction right now. But we can still live and linger on that romantic thought. And I think that is fostering uh, imagination yeah. and creativity and curiosity. Yeah. It's it's a it's a celebration of the human spirit of exploration. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. And it's also it's it's touching philosophy and uh, po poem. Po it's almost poetic in a sense. But but coming from the poetic and philosoph philosophical point of view, let's go down some clues what we know for a fact, and, and let's trying to. Um, discuss these clues. And first of all, I'd, I'd like to talk about geologist climber Noel Odell's sighting from 1924. And in, in Odell's diary entry, 
written within the first six days after his sighting, he simply said that at 12.50 saw Mallory and Irvin on ridge nearing base of final pyramid. This strongly suggests a point at or above the second step. So I'd like to know, and please tell the listeners, why is Odell's sighting significant for finding out what happened to Mallory and Irvin? Yeah, I mean, um, it is significant for um, two reasons. First of all, um, the sighting in itself is the last link to Mallory and Irvin. It's really the last time anyone saw them alive. So that's significant in itself. Um, and as to the question, what happened to them? Um, of course, to determine where exactly he saw them um, is very important for the question, could they have reached the summit if they had been at the second step? Odell's sighting would have meant that they had climbed the crux of their route and the summit would only have been yeah, perhaps three hours away from them. Um, but if they were lower, of course, the, the chances that they made the summit would have been greatly diminished. So that's why the whole sighting of Odell has been discussed so extensively. It's possible that Odell had seen Mallory and Irvin at the third step. That is something first proposed in 1981 by Walt Unsworth. Because several people, they are struck how surprisingly well this match, Odell's sighting. You were advocating for this for quite a while, as far as I'm concerned, but then you changed opinion. Tell me about this. Yeah, um, I've, I've been discussing this sighting of Odell um, over and over again. And when you ask me right now, I'm still undecided. Um, I can find arguments for and against each of the three steps. So if we tick them off one by one, well, the first step is um, an obvious place for the last sighting because many people believe that the second step was far too difficult uh, to overcome for Mallory and Irvin. So they must have been on the lower uh, first step. And in that case, of course, they didn't make the summit. Well, the third step, um, I was really struck um, how well the third step matches Odell's sighting. I watched Conrad Enker and Dave Hahn on the 99 expedition um, along Odell's line of sighting, uh, though from lower down, but it was the same angle of view, and I could virtually take out Odell's account and tick it off step by step. It matched perfectly. Of course, the question is, could they have made it that far and that high in the time given? Um, most people say it's it's highly unlikely. So the question is, could they have been at the second step? Um, that is also a difficult question. Um, some people say it was too difficult. Others think it was within the capability of Mallory. So. As I said at the onset, 
there are arguments for and against each step. And um, it's probably pretty much depending on my daily mood uh, what what step I give preference here. Um, one thing that is very interesting that has come up in recent years is that we cannot even be sure if Mallory really intended to follow the Northeast Ridge and climb over the second step. Um, Norton in 1924, was of the opinion, yes, Mallory advocated the ridge, and Odell's sighting seems to confirm this. But there's a quote from Captain John Noel, the expedition's photographer in 1924, who claims that Mallory had discussed with him the routes he wanted to uh, use on the summit bit. And the surprising fact is that in this quote, the second step doesn't feature at all. Um, according to John Noel, Mallory either wanted to follow Norton and cross the Great Couloir and climb up the spur that is on the other side of the Great Couloir and leads up to the summit ridge, or if the crossing of the Couloir was too difficult, he would try to pass over the head of the Couloir and then angle back to the northeast ridge. And if he had followed that second route, he would have ended up in the vicinity of the third step. So if the third step sighting matches Odell sighting, there is the possibility, yeah, maybe Mallory and Irvin arrived at the third step by a different way, not over the second step. But that's still speculation. Captain Noel is perhaps not always the most reliable source, but it's an interesting aspect and it shows how little we actually know what happened to Mallory and Irvin above 8,500 meters. We can't even be certain which route they took. Another item that was in 1933 where Percy Harris found Andrew Irvin's Isaacs at an altitude of 8,460 meters. So it, don't, it didn't look like they had deliberately been placed there. What do you think happened there? Yeah, the obvious explanation was, as the Isaacs was lying free on a rock slab, um, that it was dropped in an accident. Um, that is, of course, a perfect assumption. Um, there's only one trouble with it. Uh, when our search team, Jake Norton and Brent Okita, um, went to the IceX site in 2001, they discovered that there is a shelf, a rock ledge, running just below, um, which would have caught any slip or any slide or any stumble at that spot almost certainly. So they found it hard to believe that a fatal fall occurred at this spot. Um, and last November, I talked to Dave Hahn about this, and he said what troubles him about the Isaac site is that of all places on the upper northeast ridge, it's the least likely place to fall. So um, it's really another mystery 
why did the ISX end up in this place? Um, I'm still open to the possibility that some sort of accident happened there, perhaps not a fatal one, but one that was sufficient uh, to break the rope and to separate the two climbers. And then in 1991, Eric Simonson stumbled across an old oxygen bottle, which when retrieved in 1999 had belonged to Mallory's expedition in 1924. Now, understanding what the numbers of bottles that Mallory and Irvine took with them on their final climb is of great importance. Uh, why is the numbers so important? Yeah, of course, the oxygen supply they had available to them is uh, very important uh, for the chances of them having reached the summit. I mean, the more oxygen they had available, the greater their chances would have been that they have could, they could have used oxygen to their full advantage. Now, we know that the 1924 oxygen sets were capable of holding up to three cylinders, and three cylinders would have given them around 12 hours of oxygen. Um, Mallory intended to go for the summit with two cylinders. That's what he wrote in the last message. Um, sent down by high porters. Um, and uh, he said, we will probably go on two cylinders. Well, what we know is that um, Mallory and Irwin wanted to use very little oxygen up to Camp 6. So <clears throat> every available oxygen cylinder could be used for the summit climb. So the supply they had at Camp 6 was enough to go with three bottles per person. Um, but as Mallory wrote, uh, they probably went with only two. Um, now, I have long since wondered how many bottles they actually took. And um, there is one very interesting clue. Uh, there was a letter envelope found with Mallory on which he had noted five numbered oxygen cylinders. And because the one oxygen bottle that was later found high on the Northeast Ridge, bottle number nine, is also on that letter envelope, it seems to me very likely that the bottles on that letter envelope is the actual supply Mallory and Irvin took for the summit climb. And now comes the surprise. It's not four bottles on that letter envelope. It's not six bottles. It's five. So I wonder if in the last moment, Mallory made this sort of compromise and decided to go with five bottles. So they had two bottles each and one spare bottle. And that, of course, makes me question, what was Andrew Irvin's role? on that final climb. Was he perhaps, and I know that this is something that needs to be handled with very, very much care, uh, bringing this issue up, because um, it perhaps puts Mallory in a not so good light. Perhaps Andrew Irvin was more in the role of a supporter or Porter for Mallory, and that had, Mallory had 
calculated right from the start that he might end up climbing the final stretch alone. Now we know they used two bottles of oxygen up to 8,500 meters. So they would have been left with three after that. And by the time they were last seen, they would have used that second pair of bottles as well. So now, either at the second step or perhaps even at the third step, they would have been left with just one full cylinder of oxygen. And that would have given at least one of the two climbers a chance of making the summit alone, that final stretch. Whether this actually took place is something we cannot know, but that is what from the from the oxygen count, so to say, uh, emerges. And from these very interesting facts derives a couple of sub-questions. If Irvin was had a role as a supporting person, as perhaps um, a porter, to, so, so to speak, if he was helping facilitating Mallory's climb to the summit, uh, and they were only used, and we only found one oxygen cylinder out of five possible. Where are the remaining bottles? And where is the pack frame that was used for these bottles? Because when Mallory's body was found, no oxygen bottles or pack frame could be found anywhere. And and despite all the scrutiny on and the investigations. Uh, conducted on many, many expeditions, there is no pack frame. There is no more oxygen cylinders. So where are they? That's a really good question. And it comes back to an earlier question or fact that we can't be sure which route they took beyond 8,500 meters. So perhaps those remaining um, oxygen bottles and pack frames are in an area that has not been explored so far. The other possibility is, of course, that they simply dropped the empty oxygen bottles, um, as, for example, George Finch and Jeffrey Bruce did in 1922. Um, and there's a tiny bit of evidence that something like that might have happened, um, because in 1981, an American climber found a piece of metal with a leather strap. And she later became a bit involved in Tom Holzell's research. And after conversations with Tom, she said she's pretty sure that this piece of metal with a leather strap was from one of the old pack frames. And the interesting thing about that is that this piece of metal was found at the base of the east face. And there's only a few locations where the route from the north side comes so close to the crest of the ridge that an oxygen pack frame uh, could be dropped down the east face. So that's an interesting aspect. Unfortunately, that piece of leather strap and metal was never recovered, so we can't con we cannot conclusively prove that this is indeed from a 1924 pack frame. But it is 
it is definitely interesting. And then back in 1960, the Chinese expedition was rumored to have found a wooden tent pole and length of rope on the slabs of the North Face below the second step during the Chinese successful summit bid. Now, if the rumor were true, it could only be left by Mallor and Irwin since no subsequent expedition had left equipment that high. What do we know about these items? Well, what we know about these items is that this was a translation mistake. Um, this rumor cropped up again and again in literature, for example, in, in one of Reinhold Messner's books. But even at the time, in 1981, when this became known that the Chinese has made this discovery, um, it was discovered that those items were not found above the second step, as it was initially understood, but below the first step. And research has shown that this referred to uh, the 1933 Camp 6 in the yellow band, where a tent pole was found and a piece of hemp rope. And that piece of hemp rope uh, was a, a guy line from the tent. Uh, and we found some of those guidelines from the 1933 Camp 6 tent in 2001 uh, during our research expedition. Um, that Chinese rumor also included two oxygen bottles. And in that respect, uh, it is now certain that this refers to two different findings by the Chinese um, they found a 1922 oxygen bottle um, down the mountain in the vicinity of ABC. And high up uh, on the North Ridge, they found an oxygen set from 1938. So the Chinese made those discoveries, but these were not related to Mallory and Irwin. Could it be the case that expeditions uh, in the 60s, and in the 70s had retrieved oxygen cylinders or maybe a pack frame uh, from the mountain that we are not aware of? Is that a possibility? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we have no way of knowing because uh, the Chinese are so proud of their first ascent from the north in 1960 that they simply don't like any evidence being found to the contrary, any evidence that Mallory and Irwin might have made the first ascent from the north. So if the Chinese decided to bring down any further traces they found, um, there's probably no way of ever knowing that this is, has happened unless one of the climber decides to talk about it. Um, it's quite interesting that um, the Chinese were to a certain degree very open about uh, their experience and what they discovered. Uh, but of course, we can never know if they really decided to tell us everything. This evidently needs to be covered with respect and, and one need to watch the words carefully, not being tempted to draw conclusions with conspiracy theories, etc. But but it's certainly awakes a kind of a doubt because if so many instances people have reported items and dead body and Su Ching's uh, 
testimonia, etc. Um, it erases uh, a suspicion. Uh, is it even possible that Irvin could have been removed? But then again, Shirin Dorje Sherpa reportedly have seen Irvin back in 1995. Is the general thought here and the general theory here that nature is working against us and not conspiracy theories, that somehow Irvin has been moved due to natural occurrences and not someone trying to cover up from their possible summit attempt? Well, on the face of it, um, we have to admit both possibilities are there, both are real. Um, and it will be interesting to, to see if, if one of these possibilities can definitely be proven. What, what happened to Irvin's body. Um, we can say now it was, in all probability, somewhere up there. And now it seems that it is gone. And perhaps we can find out what happened to Irvin's body. Anyway, as much as the Mellon Irvin story captures our imagination, we sometimes lose sight of the fact that these were living, breathing human beings with families that loved them. So Britain's Alpine Club issued a general statement concerning the treatment of climbers' remains in the high mountains. But it clearly was meant to apply to how Irvin's remains should be handled. What wishes does the Irvin family express when handling the body if found? Well, um, there are certainly... Uh statements from the Irvin family that go into the direction that they rather um, like to have the body left alone, uh, that no searches were undertaken. Um, that's an attitude I can respect, while at the same time, I'm pretty much certain that they can't actually prevent any search taking place. and. Um, of course, I fully support their attitude that if the body is found, it should be treated with respect. Um, and the pictures, if they are going to be published, this should be done in a respectful manner um, with consultation with the family and, and also in the, in the correct frame, so to say. Um, for example, in a book, carefully chosen pictures or in a documentary film. Um, and I think those are, um, first of all, very, very uh, legible um, wishes uh, that should be respected. And I also believe that this respect can be shown. Um, and that's why I have a somewhat divided opinion about the criticism that. Uh, was associated with the publication of the pictures of Mallory's body. There were mistakes being made insofar that uh, the, the picture went to a tabloid newspaper and, and they published it first, um, simply because it was the highest bidder to the, to the agency handling the photographs. 
But as far as the general publication is concerned, like we did in the book Ghost of Everest, um, that was respectful. And those, of course, were pictures of immense documentary value, um, pictures that are necessary to tell the story of Mallory and Irvin. And therefore, um, while, I, while I expect, accept the, the criticism regarding the, the way the picture was first published, um, I fully support the decision that the pictures were later published in a book in that acceptable, correct frame, so to speak. So Irvin's body is missing. The camera or the cameras, because there is an option that they were carrying several cameras. Isn't that true? Yes, it is right. Um, as we explored earlier, um, Irvin carried his own camera. He might have taken Mallory's camera at one point during the climb. And there's also a diary entry from Irvin that he um, was thinking about borrowing a small film camera from Captain Noel for the summit bit. And we know that such small cameras with just one minute of film uh, were taken on the 1924 expedition. So theoretically, <laughs> Andrew Irvin could have had three cameras with him. And of course, that is something uh, that can only be known if he is ever found. But it would be, of course, a big surprise if he had more than one camera with him. And if we do find a camera, can we still develop 96-year-old film? Well, if the camera case um, is undamaged and more or less protected by, by clothing, it should be possible um, because there have been cases from the Antarctic where old photographic plates were found and were developed after 100 years. So it's definitely possible. Um, what's been overlooked in all the debates um, about film being developed after so many years is the possible impact of uh, cosmic rays. Um, cosmic radiation uh, gets stronger at altitude, um, because there's lesser atmosphere to, to shield um, the environment from it. Uh, so this could have potentially damaged any film, even through the camera case. Um, but again, uh, if the camera is found, uh, one has to see uh, what it will uh, deliver. Um, and we can't be sure. Um, it could be a big discovery, but at the same time, it could be a big disappointment. So if someone planning an expedition to Everest and they stumble across the vest pocket camera, what are the guidelines how to treat the film as found? Oh, that is... Um hard to put into just a few sentences. I mean, Tom Holzell has published a several page long guideline for this. Um, I think the main problem is um, to keep the camera frozen. That is paramount. And the camera should be kept frozen 
and in that frozen state uh, be delivered to a specialized laboratory uh, that can do the recovery and the developing of the film. Um, if uh, the camera is not frozen anymore, it's uh, very likely that the film will be destroyed. So it's not only a mystery trying to find and locate the camera, it's a technical achievement of, <laughs> of its kind just to keep it safe from um, destruction once found. Uh, how in earth, and I know I've been on Everest and if you travel back to Kathmandu or if you travel back to Lhasa, how on earth would you do that? Would you bring a, um, a, a box with full, full of ice and, and, and travel it? You must have had guidelines back in 1999 when you were on your research expedition. You had some kind of idea how to treat the camera one if found. What were your methods? Well, to be honest, um, we had a number of plans, and I still have them, and I'm not going to reveal them. Uh, the legality is concerning ownership of the camera, and who owns the copyright to any images is, is a fairly complicated one, requiring detailed analysis of copyright law since even before 1924. If someone stumbles across Urban, retrieves the camera, then what should they do? Will they be fined? Will they eventually be prosecuted? Uh, is that a possibility? Well, it could very well be that lawyers will have a field day if the camera is ever found and that any team or individual who has made this discovery uh, will end up wishing they hadn't done it. Uh, because it will be so complicated and drawn out legal battle over over the pictures. Um, I can only hope uh, that if the camera is ever found, that there will be a way uh, to recover the picture and that in the end, uh, their historical value um, will be noted will be um, seen as the primary issue behind those pictures, not any legal issues, but that their historical importance is what really counts. And that they therefore can be made available uh, to a public because it will be so exciting to see those images. Yeah, you bet. It is. And perhaps that is uh, the dream many people live on still today. Uh, that exciting idea that if retrieved, if found, what will this picture reveal? So will we ever find out if Meller and Irvin made it to the top of Everest? Probably not. In the same way that we will never find out that they didn't make it, and that's the good thing. But do we want to know if they didn't make it? Yeah, I mean, that touches upon something we have uh, discussed earlier. Um, there is the danger that any 
definitive conclusion, any proof that they didn't make it, um, will destroy the mystery. And that would be a sad loss. So do we want to know? If you ask me personally, it's I want to know to a certain degree, but perhaps not the totally conclusive answer. Um, if I can wax a little bit philosophical here, um, I once had a dream that what I would like best is that the camera is found and that a picture is developed that shows Mallory above the second step heading towards the summit. And that is the last thing we know. That would be a really, really fitting ending. It would show that they got higher than anyone else at the time, but it would not solve conclusively the question whether or not they made the summit. That would be my dream ending to the Mallory and Irvin story. And what would be the dream ending for Mallory? Does he want his story to I be told? I think so, very much, yeah. Given the person he allegedly was from the history books, from what is known, from his letters and so on, I think he would really appreciate if the story, if his story the story of his struggle with Everest would be told to the greatest possible detail. And actually, that's what really drives me and what keeps me exploring the story, that there's still the potential to know more, not only about what what happened to Mallory and Irvin on that fateful day in 1924. But with that knowledge, also the knowledge of what kind of persons they were. Because uh, there's the statement um, that Mallory was this kind of artist who, who didn't want to leave his opus magnum uncompleted. So he had to return to Everest for a third time. And it would be really great if by exploring his story further, it would reveal even more of the man that he was. Because this climb that was his piece of artwork that was... This is expression of himself. And the more we learn about his final climb, the more we know about the man. So, Jochen, are you going back for, uh, is this six time now? I hope so. <laughs> and when do we expect you to return? Well, I can't say for sure. I probably say when the opportunity arises. Well, we were looking forward to hear back from you then, hopefully. Um, now, any last words you want to share? Any last words? Well, first of all, thank you, Frederick, for 
linking up again with you through that podcast. And thank you for the extensive questions. It was really nice to go over so much ground again. And I think with this podcast, you and I um, have shown people what an amazing journey all of this has been for every participant, for the climbers in 1924, for Mallory and Irvin, for you who has climbed Everest, for me who has been on four search expeditions right now. It's been an amazing journey and every journey you undertake has value, is important, can give you unforgettable experiences. So the only important thing in all of this is, yeah, go out, go out and explore. I love it. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on this podcast. Uh, thank you sincerely for your time and contribution, Jochen. If people want to find out more about you, where should they turn? They to? can look at my website. That's www.jochenhemlab.com. And on that website, they will find everything. Reference to my books and films and also to the Mallory and Irvin story. Thank you.